It's quite remarkable as we come to the end of Mark's gospel in these, uh, we have, I think, this message and two more messages that we're planning for Mark's gospel, but here walking with Jesus through these years of his earthly ministry, seeing him perform all kinds of powerful miracles, signs and wonders, teaching the law of God, the law of love, the law of love for others, uh, explaining the, the way into the kingdom, the way of the gospel, and yet, even at this point, many reject him. And we're going to walk in the midst of a crowd today, a crowd that reminds us not just of other people and their problems, but actually looks all too familiar. That as we open the Word of God together, let's do so in faith. Join me, please, in praying for God's blessing and for the Spirit's guidance that we might understand it and obey it. Father, we are thankful to gather again in your name and thankful for the promises that fill your Word that you are the God who comes and meets with ordinary people like us. We've done nothing to deserve it. As a matter of fact, we can think about a, a hundred things right now that would cause us to fear your presence. And if you were to show up, it would be for judgment alone because we are not good people by nature. But you have come in saving grace and rescuing mercy and in the person of Jesus Christ have done all that is necessary for our salvation so make the power of his life and death and resurrection reside with us today, even in us. And we ask that you would be true to your word. Again, that those who've never been told of him will see and those who've never heard will understand. And we are committing our hearts and souls, our very lives to you on this day because you alone are able to strengthen us according to your gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So let your blessing rest upon us, you, the only wise God, to you be all glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Mark 15, Mark 15, if you're using one of the Bibles from the pew rack or seat rack in front of you, uh, you'll find this portion of scripture on page 852. We've all been amazed at how the recent protests have spread, and there are questions and concerns. It's not simply a matter of geography at this point, but even along the lines of political idealism, and many people taking to the streets for various reasons, and some of those groups are extreme, both on the right end of the spectrum and also on the left. And they have used this moment not only to foment a kind of rebellion and revolt from their perspective, but per to promote their ideals that lie beneath those. And Thursday, we watched uh, in amazement as one of these groups took over a small section of Seattle and declared it to be the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, CHAZ for short. And it is, according to their statements, a self-governing, self-sufficient establishment. It's not only a police-free zone, but some of them have said, we are no longer even a part of the United States of America. We'll see how long that lasts. I think it's just one more way, though, in this current cultural uh, setting that God in heaven is actually showing us as a people the true nature of our souls. You see, the kind of rebellion that gave birth to, to such a, uh, an act in Seattle this past week is actually 
a rebellion common to us all. And it's not a rebellion that you cultivate through the years and, and discover and then nurture in a seedling form and, and then grow it until it's full-blown in, in all kinds of ugly or uh, significant ways. Actually, it's embedded in your soul from birth. We're all rebels by nature. We're all looking to cast off any outside authority and to establish our own autonomy. Autonomous living is not something that is new to this current age. The kind of rebellion that we're seeing has been going on for thousands of years. It goes all the way back to that moment when Adam and Eve, the first human beings, rebelled against God and ate the forbidden fruit. When we come to Mark 15, though, we are going to see this rebellion manifesting itself in some really extraordinary and ugly ways. But as we read through this passage together, again, I said a moment ago, walk with the crowd and listen carefully and watch closely. Follow along as I read, whether in your copy of the scriptures or on the screen. Mark 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said again to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This crowd that has gathered in Jerusalem on this particular day is a cross-section of humanity. And we spent some time the, a couple of weeks ago when we were in Mark 14 looking at the Sanhedrin as they began to examine Christ calling him, arresting him, and then calling him uh, before that authoritative religious council that they might find fault in him, find cause to put him to death as they've been strategizing for a long time. And remember I said, think of the Sanhedrin in terms of when, when the Supreme Court and the, both houses 
of Congress come together and the president and his cabinet are all assembled for that one great assembly at the uh, annual State of the Union address. That would give you a sense of what kind of power is assembled with the Sanhedrin. They represent what was probably the most powerful organized religious group on earth at that time. Then secondly, you have Jewish worshipers who've gathered for Passover. And while they are certainly a religiously zealous crowd, they are also a strongly loyal crowd, a nationalist crowd, if you will. There's a lot of political fervor in this group that is wound up at this particular moment. And then finally, you have the Romans and Pilate. They represent the most powerful government on the face of the earth at that particular moment. They are organized politically. They are aggressive militarily. They know what they are established for, and no one will get in their way. And yet, at the center of this crowd, powerful, zealous, loyal, and committed as they are, stands the king. Ironically, he is bound at this moment. To be king means to be sovereign. To be king means to have the honor, the attention, the control. But nothing seems to be under his control at this moment from the human perspective, does it? Now, five times in this chapter, Mark uses the term king with reference to Christ. Four of those we just read, and they are used by Pilate as he speaks of Jesus being the king of the Jews. But we know by the direction that Mark is taking this, Jesus is far more than king of that particular nation or people group, isn't he? So stand in the crowd with me this morning, listen to what they say, watch the way they respond, and ask the Spirit of God to show you where you belong in this group. First of all, I want to call attention to the notorious rebel. There's a character by the name of Barabbas who appears in this text. It's interesting, if you pull his name apart, and you probably know a little more Aramaic than you may think at this point, the the first three letters of his name, Bar, refer to son. Uh, Maybe you recall the time that Jesus spoke to Peter and referred to him as Simon, Bar-Jonah. Well, Bar is just Aramaic, Aramaic for son, Jonah, that's his dad. Simon, son of Jonah. In this case, it's Bar-Abbas. Well, the word Abba probably sounds familiar to you, or Abba. It's not only the term that Jesus uses as he prays to the Heavenly Father. The Apostle Paul picks up on that and tells us gloriously in in a book like Romans that we as followers of, of Christ may actually pray to this God in heaven as our Abba. So here, this man has been given a name that some believe is not actually his proper name, but more of a a general reference. There are two lines along which this could run. One is interesting to me that Abba is also a term that in that day was applied to many rabbis who were respected. We use a term similar to that in our own nation's history, don't we? George Washington is often referred to as the father of our country. Well, they would use that term similarly, a term of respect for great teachers. And so there are some who suspect, and again, the the scriptures don't tell us, but perhaps this rebel is actually the son of a very influential teacher, as if everybody would know who the father reference speaks of and 
everybody would know tragically that this is a son who's gone a very different direction from his Jewish father who was a great teacher. Others think that it has more of a generic reference to stand in contrast to Christ. As a matter of fact, there are ancient manuscripts, uh, some of which were used to help translate the King James Version many, many years ago, and they give the full name of Barabbas actually as Jesus Barabbas. And you'll recall that Jesus was a very common name in Israel at that time. It's the Old Testament version would be Joshua or Yeshua. Many scholars think that this was probably his name as originally recorded in the text. But just a few lines there of thought that help us to see the Lord himself is establishing a contrast between this notorious rebel and another one who will be victim before this is all said and done. There's a second thing that Mark points out to us. Look at the text again, that he is counted among the rebels in prison. This term rebel speaks of people who who have taken part in armed rebellions against the constituted authority. In this particular case, it was against Rome. These are individuals who don't just participate in rebellion, but they stir it up. And we could see examples of that in the news today, couldn't we? Well, he's not only a rebel, but he's also one of those who has murdered. Did you notice what Mark said? In, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder, that's true of all of them. That's a plural that's being used there. So there are several murderers who at this particular moment uh, have, have been imprisoned. So he, he's not just guilty of murder, but he associates with murderers. And then notice that, that third line of description in the insurrection. We would love to know which one this was, but the Bible doesn't tell us. If you read the historical records of, of writers like Josephus or other first century historians, you will find there are actually multiple rebellions. Some think that these, uh, that these rebels may have, have participated or been inspired by Judas of Galilee, not Judas Iscariot. It's another Judas who led multiple re- revolts and rebellions seeking to unseat Roman power. He even put pressure on the Jews uh, from a, a, a biblical perspective, if you are, I should say, spiritual or religious perspective saying that if you pay taxes to Rome, you are sinning. So perhaps they were caught up in this kind of thinking, but certainly they were involved in organized opposition to Roman authority, and they were seeking to take back control. John 18 verse 40 refers to Barabbas as a robber, but you must not think of this robbery as someone who would hold up a gas station late on a Saturday night for a little cash. No, it's a term that actually speaks of violent outlaws. Those who happily use violence, not just to promote their cause, but to fund additional rebellion. And all of this has led him to prison, where he is now confined for his crimes. Now, Matthew's gospel is the one that uses the term notorious, and that's where I go all the way back to that first description of him. Uh, As you read it in the English version, and and the word notorious appears, in our context, we always think that there are negative connotations with that. But it's a term that could be used and is used in other places in the scriptures positively. And and I want to just give a little nuance. If you're reading the King James, you might actually see the description, notable sinner. See, it's not just that he has a bad reputation, but that he's developed this widespread reputation for evil, a notable sinner. 
It's an interesting way to translate this concept. It opens up to us all kinds of areas of thinking, and I, I think what a metaphor of the spiritual identity of every one of us, notorious for our sin. It's true not just of Barabbas. It's true not just of his associates in prison. It's true of all. And many of us have fought long and hard, as Barabbas did in a political way, but we fought long and hard to establish our own autonomy. You might not have thought of it this way before. As a matter of fact, some of you may have even looked at what happened in Seattle this week and and said to yourself, somebody ought to go in there and put that rebellion down, reclaim that territory, and establish order. I don't disagree with you in that, actually. But what you fail to recognize is that your soul is like your own Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And you've set up your little barriers and established your own law, your own country, as it were, and and you're not just keeping out other people right now, you're keeping out God himself, as if you can sustain this thing. And you are as deluded right now, spiritually speaking, as that handful of people occupying that six-block area is. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this notable, sinful, rebellious, insurrectionist mindset is limited to other people. There's a Barabbas in every one of us. The ironic reality of this kind of rebellion, this kind of quest for autonomy, is that inevitably it leads to imprisonment of some kind. It did for Barabbas and his friends. Because in the end, they weren't more powerful than Rome. It's also pitifully ironic to me that the very state they despised actually exercises an absolute control over them now and says, no, you will not go where you want this morning. You will not eat the food you choose. You will not transact in the commerce of your liking today. We will tell you when to get up, what to eat, where to go, what to wear, how to live your life today. And you know, that's actually what sin always does. It always leads to prison. And while our sin itself is an effort to throw off other authority, it actually brings us into the greatest bondage we could ever experience. So he's a notorious rebel. That's an old photograph of John Dillinger's information. He's he's a bad guy from ages ago. What's curious about this, and I know you can't really see it on the screen, and not only has his picture, his fingerprints, but there on the right side of the screen is his criminal record. And again, I think to myself, if God were to create a similar piece of information about my life apart from Christ, what would be included? And my list might be a little different from Barabbas. I mean, I've never led some kind of insurrection that left a murder, but there's another kind of insurrection that I can think of I've led, and so can you. And you know, all that notable sin has resulted in his condemnation by Rome. He's scheduled to die by crucifixion on this very morning. Those two robbers crucified on either side of Jesus, well, they went through with the scheduled execution, and Barabbas should have been the one in between them. This is the day that he, along with two other violent, murdering insurrectionists, are scheduled to die horrifically. There's no negotiating the sentence 
as dawn breaks on this particular morning. He has no lawyer going into a courtroom somewhere saying, please, stay this execution. It's a done deal. And again, spiritually speaking, there's condemnation awaiting every single sinner. The Apostle John wrote, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever, be- whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are by nature people under God's wrath, born in that condition. You don't achieve it by crossing a line at some point, you know, the, the really, really bad line. As if God says, well, you know, if you'll just pull back a little bit, then I'll spare you from condemnation. No, we're all in that condition, aren't we? You see, Barabbas is a bad man awaiting a bad end, but he's a picture of all of us. Well, there's also a notorious crowd. That's not the biblical term that's applied to them, but I think that when you begin to see some of the parallel uh, realities of, of the way they think, the way they speak in this particular moment, you could draw a line straight back to that list that had developed over Barabbas. Look at verses 8 through 11 with me again, please, and notice how quickly this thing unwinds. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For you perceive that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And they call for the release of this notorious rebel. I think Pilate is making a, what he thinks might be a, a really shrewd move. Thinking to himself, well, I'm going to do what I usually do during Passover and give them the opportunity to tell me who to release. But if I give them the choice of, of this really notorious criminal who is scheduled to be executed today, and, and it kind of makes you wonder how many people would have actually sided with Barabbas or considered him to be an ally even of a political or uh, military nature. But from Pilate's perspective, you can see it unfolding. Barabbas or Jesus? Well, surely they will choose Jesus. I mean, why wouldn't they want this innocent, miracle-working teacher to be released again? Surely there are more people who need to be healed. Surely there are more people who need to be delivered from the powers of darkness. Surely there's another crowd somewhere that is hungry and could stand to have a, a, a really generous provision of fish and bread on this day. But they call for the release of the rebel. That's not the only stunning part of this story. Look at verses 12 to 14. They cry out and shout for the death of the king. And the terminology there, I mean, these are not simply like, I'm I'm preaching at a little louder volume right now than I would carry in conversation, right? But the volume of my voice is not at the level that Mark describes for us, for he uses terminology that refers to loud cries, screams, if you will. And it's obvious that this is not a a rational request because when Pilate says, why should I crucify him? What evil has he done? Look at verse 14. They just shout it all the more. They're beyond the point of rationality. And John records in his gospel that it's at this moment Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answer him, we have no king but Caesar. That would be stunning coming from the Jewish crowd itself, but from the chief priests, the ones who supposedly swore allegiance to God alone, 
His holy law, and for them to actually testify publicly that we have a, a singular allegiance to Caesar, it's unimaginable. Matthew records in chapter 27, verse 25, that all the people answered in reply to Pilate, his blood be on us and our children. And so now the insanity of the crowd reaches a fever pitch as they actually invoke God's curse upon them, God's judgment upon them, saying as it were, if this man is innocent, then let his blood be on us. You know, whether you like Jesus or not, whether you're a follower of his or not, when you just set all the pieces of this story on the table and consider it, wouldn't you have to conclude that this crowd is manifesting a rebellion that is so deeply seated in their souls and expressed so horrifically in this moment that you would say they are corrupt to the core? We have no king but Caesar. Even the choice itself is madness. Let's consider that for just a moment. Caesar, he's a melancholy, withdrawn man whose moral corruption was widely known. And during his reign, he expelled all Jews from Rome and sent 4,000 young Jewish boys to fight his wars. Not Israel's wars. He just said, 4,000 available young men go where I tell you. He's not a friend of Israel. Rome has not simply occupied Israel, but enslaved its people through exorbitant ta taxes and brutal enforcement of its laws by its military. By contrast, Jesus has spent his adult life serving the outcast and marginalized healing the sick of all manner of diseases and raising the dead. He's delivered the demonized from the powers of darkness. He's miraculously provided food for thousands. He's not only been a model citizen teaching that it is right to pay taxes to Caesar and to give offerings to God, but he has corrected the false teaching and application of Israel's law and shown what it truly means to love God and love others. He did not come to promote a political cause or partisan agenda, but offers a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom that is first one of the heart. And he has wholeheartedly devoted himself to doing the will of the Father who sent him. He is a man of true righteousness as opposed to Caesar's immorality. He is a man of true justice as opposed to Caesar's agenda for personal advancement. He is a man of eternal peace as opposed to Caesar who is perpetually at war with his enemies. And in all of this, he is described as a friend of sinners and he is the savior of the world. This demonstrates the insanity of sinful hearts that will not submit to God, that corrupt as they are, they actually must choose a corrupt king. Because for corrupt people to live under a pure and holy king would be the most miserable condition but it's also a grim reminder that the corruption sin works in us is deeper and more fatal than we would like to admit. Aren't you glad that God did not leave us to our sins and the insanity resulting from that? And so we look at verse 15 and the scene seems to almost come to an abrupt end. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. 
That's it. It's over. The decision's made. The sentence rendered. Condemnation is coming. Yeah. This is what I would describe as the scandal of the gospel because it's actually going according to plan. Not Pilate's, not the Sanhedrin's, not even the Jewish crowd. It's going according to God's plan. Pastor Kevin DeYoung has written of this event, saying, if ever there were a clear picture of the gospel, surely it is with Barabbas, the guilty man, a kind of imposter son of the father, goes free, while the innocent man, the true son of the father, dies in his place. Isn't that remarkable? Do you know something, friends? If, if you and I are willing to stand in solidarity with Barabbas for a moment, admitting we're rebels cut out of the same cloth, destined for the same kind of condemnation, there's actually hope. But if you stand aloof from Barabbas today going, I'm not so bad. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty good. And compared to him, and then you begin to list all of your credentials, all of your righteousness, distancing yourself from Barabbas, you will actually position yourself outside of the very mercy of God that you need. You see, 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read near the outset of the service, but for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. Okay, he's the perfect innocent one, right? We're all clear on that. So that in him, that is in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, that's a part of the story that, that is not included with Barabbas. I've always wanted to know, did, did he actually come to his senses, spiritually speaking, at some point and, and say, what just happened? I mean, was, was there ever a moment where he realized he was not only spared physical death and agony on that day, but that the, the man who took his place and went to the cross was actually the one who died and paid the penalty for his sins? Oh, I hope I meet Barabbas in heaven one day. It, it would seem like the greatest tragedy that he, he never came to faith. We'll just have to wait and see. But my friend, don't make a similar mistake by first of all thinking, I'm not as bad as Bravis. No, we are. But, but don't miss the glory of this particular point that it's not just that Jesus took your death and then kind of left you on your own to figure things out, but that God came in after that substitutionary death of his son and also declares you to be perfectly righteous for his son's sake. So the criminal record, whatever would be on your John Dillinger sheet, as it were, is absolutely gone, and, and after that erasure, the perfect righteousness of Jesus gets credited to you so that when God looks at you right now, he, he no longer sees a Barabbas, he actually sees Jesus, his son. I've said it a hundred times, and I'll say it a thousand more as God gives me breath, but that is just too good to be true. I'm so thankful for God's forgiveness. I've needed it every day of this past week as you have, but even more than his forgiveness, I'm thankful for what the theological term is, imputed righteousness. That's the free gift of his righteousness that he credits to my account. What a glory to wake after days of, of painful struggle with my own sin and some of the discouragement and to be able to wake and say, oh, thank you, God. I have the, I have the perfect record of Jesus Christ. And it's not because I'm a pastor or have reached some kind of, you know, super spiritual saint status. It's because as a notorious rebel, I've come and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what gives me hope that maybe Barabbas came to faith is that one of his buddies 
One of the other two condemned to die that day hung on the cross, and you know the story. At some point turns to Jesus as his life is just flowing out of him as Christ is, and he says, remember me today. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So at least one of those notorious rebels was rescued. What a savior. You think Jesus wouldn't save you? You think that he would not forgive you for whatever is in your past? And maybe even your recent past? What a mighty, mighty king. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There's the insanity of sin. If I can explain that phrase one more time for you. That is, when we first look at Jesus, until God really gives us spiritual eyes to see what is happening, our first conclusion would be, he must have done something really bad to die in that way. That's what it means. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Next week, we'll see that some of the passers-by as Christ hung on the cross, mocked him, reviled him. That's what Isaiah 53, 4 is speaking of. But Isaiah corrects that thinking in verse 5, doesn't he? And says, no, no, he, he wasn't crucified for his sins. No, here's what was going on. He was actually pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The discipline that brought us peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. Why? Because all of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone, everyone, Barabbas, the Sanhedrin, that rabid crowd, Pilate, the Roman soldiers who were part of the cohort that, that executed Christ on that day. We've all turned to our own way, and yet the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. What a mighty Savior. So it brings us full circle then to this question that Pilate asked, not in the way he should have asked it, but I think it still resonates with us. What shall we do with this king? Well, the first thing you might do is reject him as an imposter, which is essentially what Pilate did. You've been accused of being a king, a threat to Caesar. You're no threat to Caesar, probably not even a king. And just move on with your life as if Jesus Christ, your creator, your Lord, your savior has no authority over your life. What a fatal mistake. Or perhaps like the chief priests and Jews who were very religious, you could effectively destroy him because he's a threat to your way of life. You may have grown up in a very religious home. It may be a lifetime of tradition, a lifetime of, of very important religious moral traditions. But my friend, if your religion doesn't have Jesus Christ crucified at its center, if Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, it's an empty religion. And you may think that you are eliminating the threat by rejecting Jesus, but you actually position yourself for greater condemnation one day. But there's a third response. And as Mark has been leading us all through this gospel to the realities of who Jesus is and what he has done, you can also look to him as Savior and serve him as King. Some of you say, I first believed that years ago. I confessed my sins and put my faith in Jesus Christ. I know he has saved me. Great. Are you still operating under his dominion day by day, moment by moment? Is it possible even since that moment you first believed that you've tried to take some ground of your soul back, 
Maybe you've set up your own little Capitol Hill autonomous zone, and, and you're not saying, God, I don't want you to, to have any of my heart. You're even, and you might even say, God, I want you to have most of my heart, but God, I want to keep this little zone. You can't do that. He's king. Take down those barriers. Relinquish that ground before he comes in with force and says, it's always been mine and for your good and out of love, I'm going to take it, but it's going to be painful for you. How do you know if you're really living under his lordship? Well, you measure it in really small, almost insignificant things. Just day by day, are you in his word? And as you're in his word, are you submitting yourself to it? Are you drawing that strength that is so vital to the health of your soul from it with a view that, Lord, I'm going to believe it and I'm going to obey whatever you ask me to do? That's, we, we were there just a few weeks ago. That's what it means to love God with all your heart. But remember when Jesus answered that question, what's the greatest commandment? He, he, he wed the second commandment to it, didn't he? Love others. You know, another visible proof that you really are under the lordship of Christ is the way you are proactively loving other people. So here's a, a real question. Is there anybody that you've actually reached out to recently to bless in some way? Everything from sharing God's truth and the gospel in the formal sense of let me tell you about Jesus and what he's done just to, just to maybe grab somebody and say, hey, want to get together? You seem like you're a little discouraged this past week. How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Maybe a text, but, but some, some touch on that life where you didn't do it because you wanted to get something from them. You just genuinely had this, this sense of, of, of Christ's love flowing out of your heart that says, I want to reach them. See, those are the evidences of serving the king. Regardless of how you look at Jesus today, you can be sure of this, though, that in the same way he willingly and intentionally traded places with Barabbas, he willingly and purposely took your place on the cross. And he did it with joy. He did it with love. Our world seems like it's out of control at this moment, doesn't it? The Gospel of Mark reads as if it's a little bit out of control at this moment, but you know the good news is? There's a king who's absolutely in control. And in the same way he was moving his purposes of salvation and redemption forward in the midst of all that chaos, you can be guaranteed he's moving his purposes of redemption and salvation forward without any hindrance on this day as well. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, what a savior you are. What a king. Would you grow us in our love for you? Give us just a taste today of the power of your death and resurrection and i pray that you would console those who feel so discouraged and that you would calm the hearts of those who are fearful in this day for because of your great act of sacrifice two thousand years ago our great enemy has been defeated death itself has been overthrown tombs emptied the hope of eternal life set before us a real resurrection coming blessing and glory and honor which all belong to you but now have been made something for us a part of our inheritance oh lord god give us the hope of christ
And for those who continue to try to establish their own autonomous zone, show them the futility and insanity of that on this day, that they may be graciously rescued from themselves, from the prison house of their sin, from the turmoil of their rebellion, and brought to that place of sweet rest and relationship with the Most High God. Bless and keep this dear congregation. Oh, Lord, these are tumultuous times. Economically, politically, physically, there are threats on every side. But we look to you and we rejoice today that you are the eternal king. So help us to live in that great reality, believing it, sharing it, serving because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.